Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a new podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I am honored to be joined by our guest, Evan Pappas. Evan starred on Broadway in My Favorite Year, Parade, Putting It Together, and A Chorus Line. His national tour credits have included Dreamgirls, Durante, and On Golden Pond with Tom Bosley and Michael Learned. Off-Broadway, he starred in I Can Get It For You Wholesale and the world premiere of the new Strauss and Adams musical, Marty. Now he is a noted director whose credits include Liberty, A Letter to Harvey Milk, and more. Currently, he is the artistic director of the Argyle Theater. Evan, thank you for being here. Oh my gosh, Charles, thanks for asking me. So let's start at the beginning. What was the first show you saw and how did you get interested in theater? Well, believe it or not, the first, I think, big production I ever saw was an opera called The Elixir of Love. It's, I'm from San Francisco, so um, there was a, the San Francisco Opera House and did The, the Elixir of Love and um, we went as a school group. I think I was probably 12. I was bored to death. <laughs> um, I didn't understand it, but I thought, oh my God, listen to those singers, listen to that. Um, and then after that, I, I, I saw a lot of things in San Francisco, um, touring companies. I remember seeing a chorus line there. I remember seeing Pippin there, our song, and then cut to 15 years later when you're actually working opposite him. So you never know what's gonna happen in this business. So in addition to Victor Garber, who were some of your early acting inspirations? Oh my goodness. Well, I remember when I first heard the album of Evita with Mandy Patinkin, Patti Lapone, Bob Gunton. And I remember, and I was always a singer, and I remember going, well, listen to that guy's head voice, Mandy Patinkin. So I remember trying to emulate that head voice. And uh, so he was a huge inspiration to me vocally. Um, and I had developed this head voice that just could go to the heavens. It was great. Uh, uh, so I, I thank him for that. I think it's, I think it's good to, 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 to aspire. I don't always think it's great to mimic but I think it's good to aspire and, and have inspirations. Um, he was, um, I had a lot of television. Carol Burnett was huge for me when I was a kid. And uh, it's, a fun, it's a great story, but my friend Joyce and I, we lived two houses apart. And uh, we used to send her really bad scripts <laughs> to the Carol Burnett show. And I mean, they were terrible. You know, it's like, discover us, discover us, it's silly. And, um, and all we'd ever get back it was a, a, a stamped autograph picture of her or the cast. <laughs> well, for, again, from that cut to, my goodness, um, I was 15, cut to 25 years later, I was actually working opposite Carol Burnett on Broadway in a show called Putting It Together. And I told her that story and she laughed. We, 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 we got along so well, I, I was beyond, beyond beyond, I, I couldn't even believe that I was working opposite one of my idols on Broadway. That was great. 
That's right. And there's so many, just, you know, too numerous to mention, but uh, I just admire, I admire good, solid, professional actors, you know, who do the work, who um, are kind, good, do the work, you know, inspires me. Yeah. So was acting always the first thing you wanted to do or was there something else? Oh, wow. That's a good one, my friend. Um, I think it I think I wanted to be a teacher when I was younger. I don't know why. <laughs> um, ironically, I became a teacher later in life. You know, I, I, I taught a lot of musical theater um, at the college level, uh, which I love. I love teaching. I love mentoring, uh, nurturing. Yeah, I mean, and then I, I, I direct a lot at the university college level, which I love doing. Um, I think for one of the main reasons is because I love to pass on what I had to learn the hard way as an actor, because people forget that it's, it's not show business, it's show business. Yeah. And I'm sure you've heard that before. Um, so it, it's a business, um, but I, yeah, I think, I, no, I think I always wanted to be a performer. I think it was always just, it's just in my blood, yeah. So one of the first shows you did was both the touring and the Broadway companies of A Chorus Line. Mm -hmm. What was your audition process like for that? All right, now you're not gonna believe this because this is a great story. I was doing a show in San Francisco called Beach Blanket Babylon. And it was one of the longest running um, cabarets, uh, nightclub shows, and it just closed this New Year's, past New Year's, it just closed after 45 years. And it was my first professional job and I was doing this job and I'm gonna cut to the chase, long story short, I, I decided to take a vacation and go to New York because I had some friends who had all moved to New York and I thought I'll stay with some friends. So I left Beach Blanket for two weeks and, and at that time they had $99 round trip tickets to New York. I mean, can you believe how cheap that was? So I said, I grabbed one of those junkets as they call them. And I went to New York and I was staying with friends and I saw 13 Broadway shows in 10 days. Any chance there was to see a Broadway show, I was there. My first Broadway show I saw was Sweeney Todd with George Hearn and Dorothy Loudon. Oh, here again, how crazy our business is. Cut to how many years later I'm working opposite George Hearn in putting it together with Carol Burnett. So again, that's like, what, how, how amazing is that? So I'm, I saw 13 shows and then one night I was out to dinner with some friends um, and there was a guy at the table who was in a chorus line on Broadway. And uh, his name was Jim Young. And uh, he said, you know, you, he goes, I, he was in the production on Broadway. And he says, you know, um, you're perfect for the role of Mark. I said, am I? I had seen the show a few times, right? And he said, yeah, he goes, you know, they're, they're looking for the role. They're, they're, they're auditioning soon. You should, you should, you know, and I said, well, look, I'm just in New York on vacation. I don't have a picture and a resume. I have nothing. I don't have music. I'm just here, you know. And he said, uh, well, listen, go to the stage door tomorrow, ask for uh, the stage, you know, ask for the stage manager. And he said, uh, but don't tell him I sent you. But tell him I know that you're looking, tell him you know that they're looking for the role of Mark. So I did. The next day was, it was a Saturday matinee and I went to the stage door and I, I said, can I see the stage manager? And, uh, and 
they said, why? I said, I, I, just, I just heard that you're looking for the role of Mark. And the, and the stage door guy, didn't, he didn't know what was going on. So the stage door manager comes to the stage door and he looks at me and I said, I hear you're looking for the role of Mark. He said, how do you know? And he, I said, I'm not supposed to tell you. <laughs> so he said, huh. So he goes, he closed, shuts the door, brings somebody else back who was the dance captain at the time. And they looked me and I told them I was in Beach Mike at Babylon and they'd heard of the show. And they said, okay, come back tomorrow at 10 a.m. I'm not lying to you, Charles. This is exactly what happened. So come back tomorrow at 10 a.m. Now, it, they, that doesn't happen anymore. You can't walk up to a stage door and just knock on it and say, can I see the stage, you know? Um, so I, I was like, are you kidding me? So I thought, I better go see the show. I got the last ticket for the matinee, the very last ticket. And I watched the show again to remind myself of it. And then I went to a restaurant across the street between shows where a friend of mine was, uh, he was uh, bartending there. And I said, Ron, Ron, I have, audition, I have an audition for a chorus line tomorrow. And he said, only you. I've been here for three years. I can't get seen by anybody. And you come and you already have an audition for a Broadway show. I said, yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway, <laughs> I need music. And he had a lot of music. At that moment, in the restaurant walks Tony Giralis, who was the musical director in the Broadway company of a chorus line. And Ron knew him because he'd always frequent the restaurant. So he calls Tony over and he says, this is my friend, Evan. He's auditioning for you tomorrow. And Tony said, you are? I said, yeah, they told me to come in at 10 a.m. He said, oh, okay. And I said, yeah, but I said, I don't, I don't know what to sing. I, I have no music. And Tony says, well, what have you done? And I said, well, I just finished playing Tony in West Side Story back in San Francisco. He said, no problem. I'll bring in the score tomorrow. <laughs> and I said, are you kidding me? He says, no, I'll bring it in tomorrow. Of course, my friend Ron is just hitting himself in the head like, I can't believe this is happening. So I went in the next day and there was only one, I was, I auditioned on, on the Schubert Theater stage. It was, I couldn't, it was the day before I was sitting in the audience. The next day I was on the Schubert Theater stage. I was 20 years old and uh, I was about to turn 21. Or was I 21? I can't remember now. Anyway, and uh, I, I remember dancing, not well, and, I would, and the other guy was great. And then uh, they said, will you sing? And I was like, yes, because that was my forte. So I sang Something's Coming from West Side Story, and uh, I saw them lean, lean forward in their seats. And I thought in my head, oh good, I've got them, I've got them. And then they, I sang a little bit of Maria, and then I knew I had them. And then they had me read for the role of Paul. And I said, no, 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 no. I'm here to audition for Mark. <laughs> I was so young, I didn't know any better. And they just laughed at me. I thought that they probably thought this was refreshing. And I got hired that day to go on the touring company, the bus and truck company of the chorus line. I had to give my notice back home in San Francisco. And within four weeks, I was in, um, or three weeks, I was in Phoenix, Arizona, learning the show. Did the bus and truck for about 16 months, went to 160 cities in the United States and Canada. It was hard, hard, hard work, but a great time. I learned so much. And then they took me to the Broadway company. Yeah. Long story, but fun story. Yeah. So was anyone in the Broadway or touring companies not welcoming to you? No, not at all. Um, no, I think everybody was young. Uh, to do a bus and truck, you have to hire, you have to hire relatively young people because the stamina 
um, is it, it's hard. It's it's grueling work. I mean, at one point there were eight one night stands in a row, which means you do the show at night, you go home, you try to find a pizza or something, you get up early the next morning to get on the bus to get, and some days the bus is only, it's only two hours, some days it's six, seven hours. Um, you get to the theater, you have to do the put-in rehearsal, you do the show, you go home, you go to, it's the same thing over and over again. And uh, I think everybody was just excited to be there. Um, there's always some weirdness in when you're pretty much living together and on top of each other and you see the same people every day, you know, 24-7. Um, uh, uh, but no, it was, it was a, it was a lovely company. Um, I'm still friends with quite a few of the people. We still keep in great touch. Uh, in fact, one of uh, my best, one of my best friends, Wayne, uh, we did the show together and uh, he ended up taking over the role of Paul and they moved me to another role. So they, they would mix and match. They would move things around. It was, and this was when Michael Bennett was still alive and he was around and he would come and he would come to the companies and sprinkle his magic Michael Bennett dust on everybody and yeah. Well, since that show is actually based on the real stories of dancers and actors, a lot of people say they feel they can relate to it. Was it like that for you? I, you know what? I, I've never even thought of, I, I guess, I guess so. I mean, in, in, in many ways, you know, once one struggling with their sexuality, um, trying to figure out where they are in life in that way. Um, so I could relate to, a lot of the guys in the show um, with that. Uh, I, th I think we can all relate to these people because I think they're every, they're every they, there's a phrase called every man, which now we, ha we, sh we should say every person. Um, and I, and I, I think the characters in A Chorus Line, everybody can relate to whether you're in medicine, whether you're a teacher, whether you're, whether you're a fireman, you know, whether you're a, an athlete in the Olympics, you know, I think everybody can see themselves in these characters. I do I, not, I, I, you could, you could say to, instead of all of them on the line saying they're all performers, you could say everybody on the line is in the medical profession. Yeah. And you could, you can take all the, because they're all similar stories. I think you could just change the profession. I think that's why the show touches people so much. So one of the next shows you did was Follies in London. Tell us about doing a show that's a very American story in England. Uh, yeah, dude, you're good at this. Um, yeah, it was interesting because uh, Follies is such a cult phenomenon. And First of all, it's one of the most amazing scores ever, Sondheim scores ever. And, you know, uh, I was one of, one of two Americans that got to go over to do the show. The other one was Dolores Gray. And so I was, it was interesting. I mean, I was there for a full year. I called, interestingly, I call that my favorite year. That was a great year. I learned so much. I learned so much about working in another culture. I was, I was watching the Brits try to, as actors, find that American energy because it's, it's a very different energy. Um, in fact, sometimes some, some of the big leads would come up to me and say, say this line for me, because they'd want to hear my accent, because they would start slipping into their British accent sometimes. Um, Were the audiences different there in the way they sort of received the show? Yes, they're much more, res they're much more reserved, whereas the Americans will hoot and holler and, you know, uh, 
the, the Brits at that time, I don't know how it is now, but they're much more reserved. They're much more, they're polite. They're very polite audiences. They don't cheer. They just, they, they applauded nicely. You know, they're not, they're not as effusive as Americans are. Yeah. So that was interesting to, so I was like, what? I'm like, are they sitting on their hands? <laughs> and then, you know, it depends. And it depended on certain audiences, as you know, um, are different. They're, they're all different. They're always different. You get some that are quiet, 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 and you think, oh, they hated us. And then they're the first ones to give you a standing ovation. Or you get audiences that are like, you know, you know, raucous, and they don't stand for you at all. You know, it, it, there's no rhyme or reason. You can't figure it out. I know you did that, and then you did another Sondheim there later. You did Merrily We Roll Along. I did. I did. I did. Um, yeah, it was great. Um, we did the four of us. Yeah, so we were the four, the four younger selves. Young, what was it? Young Ben, young Phyllis, young Buddy, young Sally. I played young Buddy. And the four of us, we played the four roles in Merrily. Simon Green and Jillian Bevan, who were the young Ben and young Phyllis, they decided to do a big... Um, benefit and they so they got we four we four played the four principals in Merrily and then they got a bunch of other big West End stars to play a lot of the other roles mm -hmm. and it was a huge success and it made a lot of money for, for a, a trust uh, for somebody who had passed away over a big star over there and uh, we did two performances and it was it was it was one of the most magical times in my life it was thrilling. It was really, really thrilling. Yeah, I loved it. In fact, there's a, we recorded, oh, and then I went back to England two years later to do it at a theater uh, called the Leicester Haymarket Theater. And uh, we recorded, we recorded the, uh, one of the, one of the many Merrily albums. I'm on one of those. Yeah. So one of the next shows you did was a regional production of Lucky Stiff, which yeah. I believe was your first sort of acquainting with Arns and Flaherty. Yeah. You would later do my favorite year with. So how was that? Um, great. I love Lucky Stiff. It was another one of the greatest times in my career. We did it the only theater in Maryland, and uh, it was a, just a ridiculously talented, funny, gifted cast. Um, the director, Jack Going, he, he directed it like a farce, which it is. Um, and, but he, he's really, really good. He's really fine at farce. And I learned a lot from him with that. In fact, a couple years later at the same theater, I did lend me a tenor with him. And so I got to even learn even more about farce, which is now as a director, I use a lot of that in my work. Um, uh, but we had the best time. Oh my, my best friend, Tia Spiros, she, we, she played opposite me in that as Annabelle Glick. Uh, but we were, it was such a hit that we extended for a week and uh, we were, we then, we were suddenly nominated for all these Helen Hayes Awards. And we were this sleeper hit that it was like, what's this show, Lucky Step? What is this show? And people were coming, screaming, laughing. It was so well done. It was so, we couldn't wait to do the show every night. Um, and then we ended up uh, being the talk of the town. And there was another show at the time, Arena Stage was doing a production of On the Town with a bunch of my friends in it. Yeah, so cut to suddenly the Helen Hayes Awards 
nominations come out and there we all nominated. We thought, oh, we're not gonna win, you know. Like, well, we won best musical and I won best actor. And that was like, I was shocked. I didn't, you know, I, we didn't, that's how well received it was. And uh, that's and that's how I got to know Lynn. Stephen and Lynn, they, I, I met them in the audition. I met them, they came to see the show. And then the next thing I know, um, I went into audition for my favorite year and uh, I, I booked that, yeah. And then I got to work with them and that, that was, they, they are pretty, pretty special people. They're pretty special people, yeah. I know that actors have a lot of different views about awards. What would you say yours is? I think it's lovely to be nominated. I think I, it's lovely to win. Um, I've, I've always wondered, how do you say that somebody, one person's better than another? How do you say that somebody who did a comedy that's up against somebody who did a serious drama when it's two different styles of acting? I mean, how do you say somebody's better than somebody else? Um, I always have a problem with that. Honestly, I think, you know, yes, it's always nice to be nominated. And yes, I would never turn down a nomination or an award. But I sometimes wonder if people concentrate too much on that instead of the work. That's always been my feeling. You know, uh, it's, like, it's like reviews. Um, I stopped reading reviews years ago because I was the kind of actor that could get nine good reviews and one bad review and I dwell on the bad review instead yeah. of saying, wow. And then, um, and, and then something happened and I realized one day that if I believe the critic who says I'm good when they say I'm good, then I have to believe that same critic that says I'm not good when they say I'm not good. And that's when I thought, no, I didn't do all this work to, to, to say that they're going to judge my life and my career and my work. And so I try to teach my, my kids that a lot of my students and other fellow actors, I try to say, no, don't, don't read reviews. And a, lot of, and a lot of actors don't read reviews, especially big Broadway actors, the, the more they go up the, the ladder, they learn to not pay attention and just do the work and just do the work. So a few years later, you did a studio album of Lucky Stiff. Who was it that asked you to do that? So Steven. one of the next things you did was a tour of Durante, the show Durante, where you played Jackson of Jackson, Clayton and Durante. So right. how did you do your research for that? Well, you know, again, that's great because Eddie Jackson, there wasn't a lot of video on Clayton Jackson and Durante. And it's a, it's a fascinating story because out of this vaudeville trio, um, you had Jimmy Durante, who was the real comic genius star. You had uh, Lou Clayton, who was a famous tap dancer. And you had Eddie Jackson, who was a real high strutting fella. Um, big belty, high strut, high belt, belt, belt. He could belt it. And, and he always had a top hat and a cane. And, um, there, but there wasn't a lot of video on these guys. I think we heard some old playback audio. Um, we had to find a way to make that these characters our own because there wasn't a lot of reference because they stopped working together thirties when they vaudeville wasn't a big as much a big deal anymore and uh, or forties and and uh, Jimmy Durante was coming the becoming the big breakout star so the other two kind of fell by the wayside so there wasn't a lot to to reference so we we kind of did what we could and created characters. Yeah. Did you enjoy traveling back to sort of the vaudeville era? I loved it. 
<laughs> I, I, I love vaudeville. It's fun. It is fun. Um, yeah. And working with those two guys, uh, uh, Joel Blum and Lonnie Pry, we had, we had a great time. It was, in fact, we had, we had an act one closing that was so exciting that the audience was on their feet. So I wish the rest of the show were as good as that act one closing. <laughs> the show was just fine. You know, it was fine. So what was it that appealed to you about doing your next show, which was I Can Get It For You Wholesale at the Jewish Prep? Yeah, that was great because um, that was a big breakout role for me. Um, it was the first time they were reviving this musical. This was a musical that Barbara Streisand was originally in with, and with Elliot Gould. And that's where they met and got married. Um, and I played the Elliot Gould role. I played the leading role and uh, opposite uh, Carol Lee Carmelo. And you know who Carol Lee Carmelo is? Yeah. Yeah, yeah she's a good, good friend. And, and we, had, we, we ended up doing Parade together. So it was interesting. We were love interests in... I can get it for you wholesale. And then in parade, we were, you know, I was trying to get a story from her and I was, you know, not kind to her. Um, uh, but uh, I can get it for you wholesale was, um, it was the first time they were reviving this musical. And so people were really interested in it. And we did it on a shoestring budget. I mean, I'm telling you, it was just, we were in a, in a little basement underneath a grocery store um, sometimes the frozen food section would break and it would be raining through the walls on the audience. <laughs> it was hilarious. And, uh, but a great cast. Uh, it turned out to be this great production. We didn't expect to be the hit that we became. We, we were such a hit that we were supposed to move to Broadway and then it got botched and we didn't go. And it's a shame because it was a year that there wasn't a lot up. There weren't many Broadway musicals. I think, was that the year of Jerome Robbins Broadway? I think that was. And we were all like kind of guaranteed shoe-in Tony Award nominations and it didn't end up going. And it's, it's a shame because it was, it turned out to be really kind of a great low-end production. Like, kind of like Lucky Stiff, it was a real sleeper hit. And people, you couldn't get a ticket. You just couldn't get a ticket, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was supposed to go to Broadway and they just couldn't financially, they couldn't, I don't think they couldn't quite figure out how to do it. And it was, uh, I think it was too much, they wanted too much too soon. And I don't think they could hit meet deadlines. And, and unfortunately that also fell by the wayside. I mean, I thought, well, maybe they'll do it next season. But if you don't, if you don't, in our business, if you don't, if you don't follow the momentum, it, you, it just, it, things just, unfortunately, they just fizzle out. Because, you, you know, people end up getting other jobs or a director moves on or, or you know, uh, people's interests go elsewhere and I'm not available for the slot or, you know, that kind of thing. Do you yeah. think there still ever might be a new life or a new audience for that? Or? They tried to get, uh, I heard that, uh, I think it was last year, or a couple years ago, the Roundabout Theatre Company was, was doing workshops of I Can Get It For You Wholesale. Um, I'd heard, I, I, a friend, I'm trying to remember who the friend was. They were telling me they went and saw it. Um, but yeah, the, nothing happened. You know, and now with the pandemic, nobody knows what's, you know, everybody's in such flux. You know, we're all trying to take the lead from everybody else. We don't know what's, when anything's gonna really open up again. It's, it's anybody's guess. There aren't many rep companies anymore. Did you enjoy going back to that? Uh, well, you mean the Jewish rep? Yeah. 
Well, actually, that's just, that was just their name. Uh, they, oh. they they would just do yeah. They would they would just like a regular uh, uh, regional theater. They would have a season of shows, and that was one of them. You know, interesting though. I I don't have I. Honestly, I don't think I've ever done a rep company. Like I never did summer stock where you would do like you'd be rehearsing one show during the day while you're doing another one at night, you know, which I'm, uh, I am never did a rep. Isn't that interesting? My whole career, I never did, you know, where you go back and forth in different shows at the, within like, you know, a month, two months at a time. So next you did a show that's one of my favorite shows ever. And for our listeners, there are posters behind of my favorite year parade and merrily we roll along so how did you audition for my favorite year oh man i i just remember going into this is when they were doing the workshops at playwrights horizons and uh i just remember i i got called in i i think i'm pretty sure Stephen and lynn requested me because of lucky stiff and I went in, I auditioned and I booked it on the spot um, pretty much within that day, I'm pretty sure. And we did, we did a workshop at Playwrights Horizons with a whole different cast. Um, the one that, the, oh, no, but the one who remained the same with me through all the workshops and the Broadway production was Linnell Stevens, who played uh, KC Downing. And she and I are still very close and now she's got two grown children and, you know, um, but I just, I went in, I auditioned, and that, that, that was it. It seems like in the show that it will be a very close company. Was it offstage? Um, you know, it was. There was, you know, when you're doing a brand new show, there's a lot of pressure and a lot of tensions and there's a lot of rewrites and you're getting rewrites day by day by day. And so sometimes people can get frustrated and have tensions and, and uh, every once in a while there was a little animosity here and there, but that is normal. That is absolutely normal. Um, and you know, egos come into play and, uh, but I will say, by and large, I, I felt that this was um, this was a really lovely, loving company because everybody wanted it to succeed, you know. And and uh, yeah, yeah. You were what? probably waiting for some dirt, weren't you? <laughs> so, what was it like being a lead on Broadway? What kind of interviews and press things did you have to do? Um. I will say this, uh, the, the one thing I do know about playing a lead on Broadway that is in a role that is that demanding, you pretty much live like a monk. You don't go out, you don't drink, you don't smoke. I never smoked anyway. Um, you don't, you, you really have to be very cautious about your daily life because you have a grueling rehearsal period. You have a grueling preview period. Um, where you're rehearsing all day and performing at night, um, you have a responsibility to the paying audience. So I was always very, very mindful of that. So that is the one thing I always know about being a leading player. You really, or any person in the business, you know, um, I, I think we have a responsibility. So I was very good about being, being careful and cautious. Um, the, 
and with that, you always had to, you know, you're doing the press and you're, and you're trying to keep your voice quiet, but then you had to go on press things because interviews, because, you know, it's, you're, you're trying to promote the show and people want to hear all about it. And, you know, and, it, and it's, so you, you, you have that responsibility too. So it was, it's hard. It's grueling. It's, it's really grueling. And you can ask anybody who does this. Our job though, is to make it look easy yeah. and that we can wake up doing it and is to never complain about how tired you are, even though you always want to complain about how tired you are. Um, uh, and, and, and a lot of times it energizes you. Um, there, are, there were days when I thought, oh, I can't do it for this matinee, I just can't. But the minute you get out there and you hear the audience, you, you wake up, you buck up, you know. Uh, the audience plays a, a key role in keeping you going, yeah. So as you were saying before, you also did a lot of workshops of this show besides Broadway. Which of the workshops or the Broadway one did you feel it turned out the best? I would, I would think when I did it with, again, I bring up his name, Victor Garber, um, and it was still with Lainey Kazan and Andrea Martin had joined us at that point and Linnell was still there and, um, I would say that, that was memorable for me. I don't know if it was the best incarnation of it, but it was the most memorable for me. And I, 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 I just, it was a magical time to be doing this. And then all these famous people were coming to watch the workshop, you know, and uh, the, the, to watch, we did a couple of performances. And uh, yeah, that was really a great, I, I loved that experience. So when it closed, and I think too early, that come as a shock to you or had you sort of seen that coming? Yeah, that's, it's bittersweet, you know, um, that's bittersweet. Uh, we, I think we saw it coming. Uh, it wasn't anointed by the New York Times. And at that time, the New York Times, uh, pretty much what they said went, Yeah. what they say goes. And um, Frank Richard was the critic who was a real fan of mine. Um, he saw me do falsettos in, at Hartford Stage playing Marvin in a really stunning production directed by Graziella Danielle. And uh, we were supposed to come to Broadway with that. Instead, we got pulled and the original company went in. It was, it was, a, it was a very trying time uh, in our lives. And um, Frank Rich was a real fan of that. And he was a real fan of mine and I can get it for you wholesale. So he came as the show and, uh, you know, he, he, he didn't love it you know, um, and people listen to him. I listen to him. Honestly, when I talked earlier about stop reading reviews, yeah. that's when I stopped reading reviews. Oh. Yeah, and um, uh, it, was, uh, it was unfortunate. Um, we, if, Lincoln Center works in a way that, uh, that if, if it's, as I call it, anointed by the New York Times, it'll run, it'll be a hit. If it's not, it's too much struggle, too much work, too much money to keep it going. So they will, they will close after the, you know, yeah, unfortunately. We were, we were, we were sad. What are you going to do? It's showbiz, you know. Yeah. The next show you did on Broadway was a dramatic role and up till then you've done, not all, but mostly comedic roles. So how did you sort of access a different part of yourself as an actor to do Parade? Oh, yeah, that's um, interesting. Um, well, I, I was kind of lucky in my career. I had like half musicals on my resume, half plays on my resume. Um, 
it's hard for actors to be looked at in, on both sides. I was very fortunate because I always approached everything as a, as a play first, as an, a, a, as, an, uh, as an acting piece first, as opposed to vocal first. Um, I had played a lot of anti-heroes, um, not good guys, or the boy next door, or the funny guy, or the, you know, whatever. And um, I went into audition for, I originally went into audition for Parade for Leo Frank. And I, and no, understanding the role, I sang a very visceral song uh, from uh, Leonard Bernstein's Mass called I Don't Know. And it's really hard to sing. And, uh, and it, it ends up on a high A and it's just very visceral. And you've heard of the gentleman, Seth Rudetsky, who does stars in the house. I, well, he's an old friend of mine. And I was one of the first people who ever coached with him. And I brought, I would bring him to auditions to play the song for me because it was so difficult. And when I would screw up, he would, he would fix it for me in, in, in play. And because uh, the time signatures always change, change, change. And um, I sang that song and I heard how Prince behind the table say, you know how good this kid is? And I was like, oh my God, just keep singing, just keep singing, you heard it, just keep singing. You know, to hear Hal Prince say something like this. I didn't even know he knew me, you know? I, I mean, he saw me do Follies in London. He went over to see the show, but that was it. And I thought this was a perfect thing for Leo Frank, which it was. But he saw me as more vaudeville. And so he said, take this, lyric there's no music set to it yet and jason robert brown was sitting right next to him and he was joking and we were joking back and forth he said take this lyric go out of the room take this lyric and 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 just come back in and, and read it for us well it was the lyrics to big news oh. and and i looked at it and i thought ah and i as a monologue because there was no music to it so um i remember i was drinking a, I was drinking a glass of water while i was outside the room and I realized that looking at the lyrics that this guy's a drunk. So I was, so I took the glass of water in the room with me and I used it like I was drinking booze. And I did this thing like I was just this drunk, washed up reporter. And uh, they offered me the job that day. I went in for run, one role, ended up in another role. And, uh, and I think to answer your question now, since I tangented again, um, I, I, I think I just really tapped into this sad, forlorn, trying to get back on top journalist. And sometimes I looked at my career. I don't call them failures. I say we have successes and not successes. And I looked at my career sometimes and I said, when did I hit rock bottom? I, you know, after my favorite year, I had a very difficult time. I, I was depressed for a good time because I just thought it was my, finally I, had, I, finally I had a leading role in Broadway and nobody cared. It didn't work. And I, and I, used, I used that time in my life um, for it. Um, and he's also extremely hungry, Britt Craig. And uh, I used also some of my early years of really being hungry in this business. And uh, yeah, I typed, I tapped in that way. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And when you do that, when you're playing, as you were saying, sort of a sad character and in a very sad show, how do you sort of prevent from letting that seep into your real life? Yeah, you can't, you have to, there are some people who love to do that method thing and method acting and just if, if they're, 
it, it, you know, if they're miserable, they're going to be miserable all the time because that's part of the character. They're going to live it 24 seven. I don't believe that. I can turn it on and off. I think if you're good enough, if you're smart enough, if you're chameleon-esque, I think uh, you, you could do comedy one day and you could be a tragic character the next. But I, don't, I personally don't need to live that life. I just want to be Evan. I just want to do, I have my sad days, I have my great days. Um, uh, so no, I never took Brit Craig home with me. No, except maybe the drinking. <laughs> so tell us about working with the late Brent Carver. Oh, I'm so sad about that, that he passed away recently. Um, I, yeah, I never, Brent and, Brent and I had, had no scenes on stage with each other in the show. It seemed like we never, we were on stage together, but we never had scenes together. We never spoke to each other. Uh, very sad because uh, he was, he, talk about a chameleon and a beautiful man, so professional. Uh, he and I offstage had a great time. We had a great rapport. We would joke together. Um, we often said, I can't wait for us to get into a show where we can be together on stage and literally talk with each other because our chemistry as people, as friends was so good. And I'm, it is such a great loss, such a great loss. To, wa to watch Brent work was just, it was inspiring, really inspiring, uh, awe-inspiring. He was so smart, so smart. And he would just, he would talk about inhabiting a role, you know, it's, 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 there's more than just performing, it's, it's inhabiting the character, you know, and he was so, so good at that, yeah. So in 2000, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, they asked you to sub for, I believe only four days in putting it together. So was that an audition or did they just call you? Actually, I did the show for a couple weeks. Oh. I, learned the, I learned the show in four days. That was hard because the gentleman who was playing the role, he had hurt his leg or something. And so I, and they called me, um, which was great. And, uh, and uh, I had to learn all, and he had all patter songs. Well, sometimes patter songs are impossible. And I had, and I thought, oh, I know all the Sondheim stuff. I know his whole repertoire. I'm just, I'm a Sondheim aficionado. Oh, I sure wasn't. I got, I, there were songs I'd never heard of. Um, and they were so wordy. Oh my gosh. But I learned the show in four days and uh, they put me in and I did it for two weeks or three weeks. I forget. But I had the best time and I was hoping so much that that guy wouldn't come back because I wanted to, and they all want, and George Hearn and Carol Burnett, they're like, oh, please stay, please stay. I had such a great time. It was really fun. Had you auditioned for that show previously? Is that why they called you or? No, they just called and offered it to me. Um, they, the, the choreographer, Bob Avian, who is res very responsible for me being in London Follies, uh, he was I knew him from Chorus Line. And then he put me in Dreamgirls. I did Dreamgirls for about six months before Follies. And then that, Bob Avian did a lot for my career. A lot. I am, I'm indebted to him. Um, I just adore that man. Uh, so he, they, he and the casting director of the show, um, they, and, and I think Sondheim, they all said, oh, I think they auditioned people, but I don't, and I was in California at the time with my family, and that's when I got the call. My agent called, and, uh, and they said, uh, yeah, they want you to come in for putting it together. I said, are you kidding me? I said, all right. It was, just, it was just a blanket offer, and I was so flattered and so thrilled, 
and then I and then it hit me that I was going to be working with my idol. <laughs> so that was great. So by this time you were dabbling in directing, but before we talk about that, I yeah. want to ask you about two other shows you did as an actor. Yeah. So you did the out of town tryout of a new Charles Strauss and Lee Adams musical called Marty. Yeah. And the book for that was by Aaron Sorkin and Rupert Holmes. All of those men are legends. Were there really high expectations for that show because of that? Oh, I think, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think any new show, there's high expectations in our industry. And especially when you have that team, uh, Rupert was in the rehearsal period the whole time. And he is one of the most beautiful, kind, nurturing. I just adore him. He's amazing and so gifted, so talented. Um, uh, yeah, there were expectations, um, and it didn't it didn't rise up to it. Uh, unfortunately, I know once it closed it at the Huntington, I think I don't think they got the um, press they wanted to get, uh, or the talk, the buzz that they wanted. Um, uh, they recast so many of us. They redid, you know, they 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 did another workshop in New York, and then that just was it, and never quite never took off yeah so tell us what was that show about and what was it like marty yeah well it's a famous movie that won a lot it was another again i use the word sleeper hit and it won all these academy awards and um it's just about a very lonely man and woman who are you know middle-aged and they just you know they've never had any but no romance no no marriage no and, and they find each other and uh, it's just a really beautiful love story. Uh, you know, it's just these two, these two misfit people who find each other and, uh, with, and their families involved. And yeah it's, it's, yeah, it's a lovely, if you ever get a chance to see the movie, it's a great movie, great movie. But you yeah. think there still ever might be a new life or a new audience for that? Or? Marty, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I think it might be too little too late yeah. You know, and uh, yeah, I, mm, I, I, I'm because I'm not associated with it anymore, so I really don't know. And what was I'm sure that I and my audience will be curious to know what was it like to work with all those great writers? Great <laughs> to watch to watch their brains work and to watch just you know it's like steam coming out of their ears. I mean, they're so it's just to to, to watch them to be able to write and rewrite overnight and come up with even better stuff and and even when they wouldn't even when it wasn't great they go ah this is bad they throw it out and they come up with something better you know i would watch it stephen stephen flaherty and lynn aaron's come in with new songs every day um and you think how do you how, how do their brains work this is unbelievable um again it's just uh it's pretty magical watching that uh, which is one of the reasons why i would sit and just watch them work um which is why it, that was so instrumental for me as a director to watch how they work. Cause now when I'm working on things and you go, ah, this need, we need to, you'll, you say to the writers, like I, I did a show off Broadway called a letter to Harvey Milk. And um, I, uh, I was working closely with the writers on that. And every day we would have, we would have meetings after rehearsals and rewrite and rewrite and I would help and, help guide and they say what about this and i'd say great keep going in that direction um you know because you, you 
you have to be adept at that. And that's a real skill to learn, which is why the best, like Lynn and, Lynn and Steve, you know, which is why they have such longevity. Yeah. Yeah. Rupert Holmes, why he has such longevity. Yeah. So in 2006, you went out on tour with On Golden Pond. Yeah. Do you, do you enjoy touring the country? I love touring. I would tour again in a minute. I love to travel. If I, I, if I could, I would retire and just travel for the rest of my life. I love it. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, lo I, love, I love touring. I love One of the main reasons I love touring is I love all the different foods all over the country. So I love all the different, uh, like, I love, um, you know, I love, like, I love New Orleans. I love all that Cajun. I love, oh, I love all that food. I love the South. I, you know, I love that food. Um, I love the seafood in the, in the Northeast. You know, I just, I love all the different cuisines all over the country. So that's one reason I really love to travel. Um, I, I like, it's, I like feeling out the different audiences because they're different in every, every state, every city. They're always slightly different, you know? Um, and I don't, I like hotels. <laughs> yeah. So when you approach a classic play, how do you sort of put your own spin on it? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I remember on Golden Pond and I remember watching the movie with Dabney Coleman playing the role that I played and very different than me, very different actor. He's actually one of my favorite actors. Um, uh, I, uh, I just, I don't know. I just, I let the director guide me in that role because I wasn't even sure, honestly, if I was even right for it. Um, but they all thought I was, so I wasn't going to argue with that. And uh, had a great time. I was, unlike the movie in On Golden Pond, the play, I was only on stage for like 12, 14 minutes at the end of Act One. That was it. And so that was, a, that was an easy gig for me. I didn't have to sing. I went on stage for 14 minutes and I, it was great. I loved it. Um, uh, it was kind of like a country club vacation, you know. Um, but I, I just, I don't know. I just, I let, I actually let the director guide me through that. You also worked with a lot of famous actors on that too, including Tom Bosley. Yeah, Tom was great. Tom, we would go out to dinner once a week. He would take me to a steakhouse. <laughs> Loved going to steakhouses. I had a great time with Tom and Michael Learned, who I adore also. Um, she and I, I haven't, I haven't talked to her in a long while. You're, you're reminding me I need to get in touch with her. Um, she and I were very close in the show. Um, uh, Loved him. There's a gentleman, Craig Bockhorn, who became one of my best friends. Um, he and I, we would play cribbage every night during the show until we had to go on stage. Yeah, he taught me how to play cribbage. Um, yeah, it was, it was uh, great working with, the, with, with those people, really great. But to watch Tom and Michael work in a rehearsal period um, with the careers they've had was uh, pretty inspiring. It was, it was a lot of fun. So after that, you did a lot of directing. What was it that made you decide in 2015 to do Cafe Society Swing? To go back to acting? Yeah. <laughs> You're so good. Um, well, my friend, I mentioned him earlier, Simon Green, who I did Follies with and we did Merrily together over there in, in London. He and I have become, we've remained great, great mates. Um, and he was directing this, this show and he directed it in London and he said to me, I, I want you to dust off your acting chops. He goes, because I'm coming to do the show off Broadway and there's nobody else that should do this but you. 
I said, oh, I'm going to kill you. I don't want to do this. It's too much. I, I can't memorize anymore. And uh, I did it for him. I, I guess you could say I came out of retirement from acting. And I did it. And I was working with some of the best jazz musicians in the city. They were, wow, amazing. And I did all the talking in the show. And it was, I couldn't rem some days I didn't remember what, but I actually had a pretty good time coming out of retirement doing this. And it was a huge hit. Who knew? It was a sold out Botho hit. And so we did, I did that for, I guess it was for three weeks or something. I don't even remember now. Three, four weeks over the holidays. But that's how I ended up back off Broadway because I, I did it as a favor to my friend. Yeah. <laughs> Would you consider coming out of retirement again to do something after the quarantine? Yeah, I would. Um, I, I would, uh, if it's the right thing. You know, um, doing eight shows a week is hard. It's really hard. And now I'm, you know, how old am I now? 183, I think. And so, you know, it's, 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 it's harder as you get older too. Um, so I would if it were the right role and if it wasn't as demanding as the stuff I had to play in the past, played in the past. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm the artistic director of the Argyle Theater in Babylon, New York, and uh, which, of course, we're closed right now because of the pandemic. But people have been saying, why don't you star in a show out here? Why don't you? And I'm like, ah, because I have too much to do to artistic director to six shows a year and also star in one. But maybe when we're back up, maybe if the right one's there, I'll jump in and do it, you know. So now let's talk about directing. That's a very different career path. What was it that made you decide to do that? Okay, actually, I always knew that's what I wanted to do. And okay. I know there's always a joke that says, what I really want to do is direct. And they, you know, a lot of actors do that. But all my life, that's what I wanted to do. I, I, I knew that's what I eventually would be doing. Um, I, I mean, uh, I love performing and I love being a leading man and I love my career as an actor through all the good and the bad and the ugly, as I call it. Um, I loved it and, and I, I just ran with it. But I, all the time I was doing that in tech rehearsals and everything, I was always watching all the other elements. I was watching the lighting designers. I was watching the sound department, listening to the sound department. I was watching the directors. I was watching the choreographers. I was watching the stage management. I was watching how everybody functioned. I, I just lived for that, you know? I, I didn't, whenever we were on breaks, I didn't run off stage and just, you know, have a cup of coffee. I wanted to watch what was happening. And my mind just wrapped around all that. And I love visual. I love creating, I love staging, I love, I love inventive staging. Um, and I love actors. You know, a lot, not a lot of directors like actors. Um, I happen to love them. I love watching each one of them and their, their individual styles. Um, uh, I like figuring out how to get through to each one um, to, to create the, and hopefully, all of us be a part of the same vision. But, you know, you're dealing with lots of different styles. You have some who are method, you have some who are Meisner, you have some who are just intuitive and brilliant. Um, uh, and I, I remember Graziella Danielle, when we were doing falsettos at Harvard stage, and we were in rehearsals and the way, the way we would talk and discuss, and I'd say, what if, blah, blah, blah. And one day, we were having drinks after the show one night, uh, after rehearsal one night. And she said, you know, my darling, this is, you know, you should be doing this. And I said, I know. 
I know one day I will be. And then it just started to happen. It just started, it started to happen. And then I had a very bad car accident in 2007, which made me rethink a lot of things. And I couldn't perform for a good while. And I think it was, I think the theater gods were telling me something. And I, I so I, I started to, I was, I was teaching more to get my physical stamina back um, and uh, directing at the college level. Um, but then I just, things just started clicking and I was getting the right calls from the right people. And um, it just, so it, it happened. Uh, yeah, I mean, it just, I, I, I think I put it out to the universe. Yeah. I think I put it out to the universe and it responded. And, it, and so I've been very fortunate with the things I've directed and I'm very proud of, very proud of it. And the people I've been able to work and the people I've been able to uh, uh, hire and continue to nurture and mentor and create and to be able to create jobs. I love that. That, that makes me so happy. So do you ever find yourself incorporating like specific elements from the directors you've worked with? Well, as I said uh, earlier, Jack Going's getting a little bit of uh, attention here. Um, he taught me a lot about farce. So I actually directed Lucky Stiff in Arizona, and I used a lot of his, his farce, farcicalness, whatever you want to say. Um, uh, Hal Prince, who I was fortunate enough to work with in Parade, I would watch him and just his mind and I would, I was trying to wrap myself, my head around what he was seeing in the rehearsal. Then when we got into tech, I went, oh, that's why this, that's why I'm here and they're there on the light end of this. Um, I would sit with, I would sit behind certain lighting designers and I would just listen to them talking. Um, yeah, I, I'm, uh, I'm trying to think. So, uh, so many of the directors inspired me in so many ways. And I also worked, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to lie here, I also worked with some directors that were not particularly amazing. And so I, and I watched how they worked with actors and their creative teams, and they were unkind. And I remember saying, I will never be that. I will never speak to some that lowly, that harshly. Um, so I actually learned from them, too what not, what hopefully not to do. That was very, I think that's very important. So describe what are your first steps when you get a new script? Read it. <laughs> um, read it. Uh, sometimes if I can't, sometimes I, I read a script and I'm, I'm, I, I, there are certain scripts that just grab you and some that don't. And it's a matter of taste. Um, it's just a matter of do, do you connect with it? And I've been given scripts before, um, and not, not a lot. I mean, it's not like I'm that kind of famous director. I'm not. I'm just a working director, you know. And, uh, but I have received scripts that I just didn't connect to. I liked the writers a lot. Um, I'd love to be in a room, but it was, I didn't connect to it. Um, sometimes I will, I will ask a friend or my partner and say, can you read this and tell me if I'm wrong in this assessment? Or do you, th you know, and... Oftentimes, as you know, you're right, it's, it's not terrific, or this is terrific, you know. And so I, I'm not afraid to reach out in that way, too, to ask somebody else's opinion on that. Um, but again, if I don't connect to something, it would be a detriment for me and for the creative team, you know, to, 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 to uh, try it. Do you prefer directing new works like Liberty or directing at places like musicals tonight? 
yeah. Yeah, honestly, I like it all. Um, I do like working closely, collaborating on a new piece. Um, I had a brilliant, brilliant time with A Letter to Harvey Milk, working with Laura. Laura Kramer, who was the composer, uh, Cheryl Stern, who wrote the book and the lyrics, and uh, Jeffrey Loden, the brilliant musical director. Yeah, we had a really great time doing that. Uh, it's, 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 yeah, it's inspiring. It gets, gets the juices flowing, gets your mind going. Um, yeah, it's good. I, I, I enjoy it very much. <laughs> so one thing that always interests me is you directed a benefit for Kristen Chen with the Big Drama League. How yeah. do you sort of make a benefit into a fluid evening? Well, that's a good one too. Um, uh, first of all, my friend Roger Danforth asked me to do that. They, they bring in directors too. They always do, uh, they always honor somebody every year. And uh, he asked me to do this one for Kristen. And uh, so you meet with them, you meet with the Drama League, and because they've been doing these for years. So they have a good formula. They know how it works. You, you reach out to a lot of famous people. Um, uh, you reach out to a lot of famous people that knew her. You hope that many of them will say yes. Uh, it depends on who, you know, a lot of people say yes. A lot of people say, I can't, I'm busy, you know. So you find, you, you, get, you get the actors in place that are going to come for free of their own time uh, for this benefit. And then you, then you figure out uh, what would be the ideal thing for, uh, to present that to her of things that she had done. And that's what a button, because you're honoring somebody. Uh, we did, what's the, what's the song from, uh, uh, um, uh, from Charlie Brown, my, my, um, my new philosophy. Yeah. And so what we did with that was we had Brad Oscar play the director and we had five young girls come in and each of them were auditioning for the role with the song. And it was really funny. And so you, we took a different spin on the number. And they were all dressed just like her, and uh, they did a little kick line in the end. It was really sweet. And then, you know, we had you know, we had some really great people who would come and sing her her songs that she made famous, but they would sing it for her. Yeah. And then, so it, it's a good. It takes a while to put this together, and then you rehearse with them individually over a day or two, and then you. Um, and you rethink and you restructure. We had Joel Gray came in and he, he emceed the evening at the top and we did something from Cabaret with him and a bunch of dancers. And then you have one day to tech it. You have like six hours to tech the show before the whole evening, before the dinner party, before the big dinner gala. Yeah, and then the show goes up. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. What do you think in all your directing career has been the most ambitious show you've ever taken on? Well, I will tell you that I was, I've directed up at Opera North in Lebanon, New Hampshire. And it's an opera company. And they, do, they would do usually one large musical and two operas. And that was in rep. That was in rep. Uh, and one year I was doing... Was it the Evita year? I was directing, yes, I was directing Evita, and they lost their director for the opera, The Daughter of the Regiment. So I was directing both huge shows at the same time. 
and it was I didn't know what hat I had on it sometimes. I was like, wait, 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 where, where are we? We're in a rehearsals for Revita right now? You know, and the companies were huge. I mean, they were really large ensembles. And, uh, and that was probably, I think that was, thank God we were up in a beautiful countryside um, in the woods and everything. Um, but that was, that was hard. So when that was over, I was like, whew. Yeah. But they turned out really well. I'm very proud of them. Yeah. So how did you get your job as the artistic director at the Argyle Theater? Another one of those showbiz stories. So earlier you mentioned On Golden Pond. Well, there, the understudy to the boy in On Golden Pond is a gentleman by the name of Dylan Perlman. And he and I, uh, we just took to each other. And he was at the time, he was 14, I think. And he was on the road and his parents had to be on the road. One of them had to be one at a time. They'd all go there. The parent always had to be with the kid on the road. And uh, so I got to know his parents and then uh, the show was over. And then, you know, I know he went to college and he majored in um, economics and he also majored in drama acting. And uh, I got a call from them one day and they said, we're uh, buying a theater. I said, what? <laughs> said, we're buying a theater. I said, what do you think? I said, I think you're nuts. And uh, they found this theater. They found an old, it was an old, uh, again, it was an old movie vaudeville house and turn of the century. And then it turned into a movie theater. And then it turned into like, they divided it up into like a triplex theater in, in like the 80s or the 90s or something. And then it just went, and then it went dead. It just and it was in downtown Babylon, which is beautiful, really very charming area. And so they bought it for like nothing and um, they renovated it and they were asking me all my opinions on all so many things. And they're like, well, what do you think? I said, what do you mean? What do I think? So we think you're the perfect person to be the artistic director for this. And I said, ah, sure. And that's, you know, most people have to go through laborious interviews and, you know, the whole thing. And it just kind of fell into my lap. And it's a nice, it's a, it's a good fit. It's a, it's a nice fit. You know, it's not without its demands. And there are days I don't sleep. And, um, but right now, sadly, you know, I'm just idle and looking forward to interviews with somebody like you. <laughs> Thank you. So what have you staged there so far before quarantine? Uh, well, we did two seasons. And I directed three of the six. So we've done 12 shows. Um, I, let's see, I directed there. I started with uh, the inaugural show, which was uh, uh, Guys and Dolls. And then I directed Hunchback of Notre Dame after that. And then I directed The Producers after that. That was a smash hit. And then the next season, uh, ah, oh, I directed Full Monty, another fantastic time. Ah, what a group of actors. Um, and then I directed Miracle on 34th Street. And then the final show of the season, last season was Cabaret, which was really stunning. Just a magical, I'm so, from soup to nuts, I was so proud of that production. The, the actors were amazing. And sadly we closed on opening night because of the pandemic. Oh. So at the theater now is this, uh, still sitting on the stage is that beautiful set. All the costumes are still in the dressing rooms. Yeah. So in addition to that, do you have anything slated for after quarantine or are you waiting to? 
Well, I'm supposed to go down to Hilton Head to direct Kinky Boots, which I was supposed to do in April. And then they said, oh, we'll do it in the summer. And then I said, oh, we'll do it in September. And now they're saying October. So as of now, it's still on. Um, again, I shrug my shoulders. I, I, you know, with everything that's going on, we don't know. Um, it could be moved again. I know my theater isn't going to be able to open for a while. Um, following all the guidelines. Um, I, am, I was also directing uh, The Mystery of Edwin Drood in Manhattan School of Music. And we were supposed to go into tech right after Cabaret opened. As you can see, I had a very full schedule. And, uh, and it all came to a grinding halt. But now that with uh, Edwin Drood, we're going to video it virtually. So we're, we're at the moment, we're uh, trying to figure out how to do it with just one person at a time. You know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen some of these plays and musicals online that they've done like this with the Zoom thing. And so we're, we're trying to do that right now and be creative and we're using the costumes because they were ready to go. We have some set pieces that were ready to go. So um, we're hoping that that's gonna, uh, I'm learning a new skill, that's for sure. With this whole, you know, have to come up with a shot list. I'm like, what's a shot list? Yeah, so it's 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 uh, it's uh, daunting but fun at the same time. And lastly, other than that, how are you keeping busy during quarantine? Yeah, how am I keeping busy? I am cooking a lot again. I love to cook. Um, I have gotten really good at the New York Times crossword puzzle. Uh, if you know, it starts Monday's easiest, and then by Sunday, it's, it's by Saturday, it's the hardest, and then there's the big Sunday one. I can get through the whole week now, pretty much. So that's a that's a big feather in my cap. Um, I am trying. There, there was a time, uh, Charles, that I, I, just didn't. I didn't. I felt like I was retired, and I just kind of sat back and I said, you know, you've been going full speed for about five years, especially the last three years. I, I always was doing like three projects at once and suddenly it came to grinding halt and I thought, oh, you're meant to slow down right now. Again, the world is saying you need to slow down. And so I was enjoying the quiet. I was enjoying the ease. Now I'm starting to get really, really antsy. And so I'm glad that the, the Edwin Rood with Manhattan School of Music's uh, come back. I, th I just got off the phone with the producers of the Argyle Theater and we were discussing, we're trying to figure out what the next steps are. And every time you think you've come up with the next steps, they're not because we don't, we know we're at the mercy of the CDC and, and just of this, this, this virus. And so we're all trying to do our best and be good soldiers and, and behave responsibly, responsibly. Uh, um, so, you know, little, little things like this are keeping me going. Um, uh, I, my, my, my creative juices are starting to bubble again. They're starting to flow again. It's great. So, yeah. I can't wait to see what you act in and direct after quarantine. Evan, thank you for joining us today. You've had an incredible career, and I feel lucky to have heard your stories about auditions, press, working with musical theater legends, and more. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. This week we have a special episode coming out tomorrow with Ken Bloom and Richard Carlin, authors of the new book UB Blake, Rags, Rhythm, and Race. So remember to come back then. It should be fun. Thank you for listening.